And if you enjoy these programs and are not a member, please consider supporting them by joining the Virginia Historical Society, which is something you can do at www.vahistorical.org. So we're excited to have Todd Culbertson, the editor of the editorial pages of the Times-Dispatch here with us today to introduce today's program. Todd? Thank you, it's a pleasure. And I'm not here to uh, promote the candidacy of Gary Johnson for president. Uh, I've been doing that on the phone nonstop since last Sunday's endorsement. Uh, by the way, I'd like to say the title of our guest book uh, is, of course, The Well-Dressed Hobo. Those of uh, you who knew him knew that Stuart Bryan was a very well-dressed man. I can't say for sure if he was a hobo, but he was well-dressed. He was a devoted supporter of the Virginia Historical Society. He was a colleague of Russia's, and he was my publisher for most, I will hit my 40th year paper in the first week of December. And Stuart was publisher and then chairman of Media General for most of that period. And he would be uh, delighted by the book. He appears in the book itself, and I would just like to say, Rush and I agree that Stuart is not with us in body. He passed away a few months ago but he is certainly here in spirit, and he will always be here in spirit at the Virginia Historical Society, and we remember him fondly. My personal uh, relations with Rush began a few years ago. I was at one of my neighborhood watering holes, and I was talking to the bartender, and uh, the weekend before, I'd gone to New York on the train and had a catastrophic experience coming back that the uh, engine decoupled uh, from, the, uh, from, from the car somewhere out near Philadelphia like at three in the morning. And it's just horrible noise, and you saw this engine going away. <laughs> and we were stuck, and whoa. And so we're talking about that. And one of the other regulars was there, a very friendly fella. Turns to me, he said, well, that's interesting. He said, you know, my stepfather has written a book about the trains. And he said, and there's a lot about Amtrak, a lot about CSX, a lot about Norfolk Southern, uh, a lot about the Richmond, uh, the Virginia and Richmond trains, and that, and he says, I'll send you a copy. And I said, oh, that's great, I'll look forward to seeing it. By the way, my dad wrote War and Peace. And that, well, uh, uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a box in the mail, and it's from Indiana University Press, and I go, what's this? And it's a book called The Men Who Love Trains. And it really was a history of the railroads uh, in that period of great convulsion when, we, when Penn Central went under. I had not realized at the time that Penn Central was the Enron uh, of its age. Uh, and that it was just a fascinating story. And I read the book, it was like reading a spy novel uh, in, in its description of uh, corporate doings or misdoings in some cases. Well, I didn't realize, my friend at the bar had not mentioned this, that the author of the book had been a business editor uh, and writer at the Times-Dispatch uh, before moving on to Fortune magazine. And so Rush and I shared that, and over the years, when he would be 
visiting family and friends down in Richmond, uh, we would run into each other uh, at this neighborhood place and we would have dinner uh, and, and trade stories and and then and we uh, among the things we share uh, is we believe that journalism is an honorable profession and and to me it's always a pleasure to be around someone who is working in an honorable pr profession and himself made that profession even more honorable I recommend this book highly uh, People who love trains will love the book. It's also a memoir of studying in Richmond, uh, loving the, the history of Virginia, and there's a lot about the Times-Dispatch and the newspaper business, and in my uh, world, there's no finer business to be involved in. And you're here to hear Russ talk, so I'd like to introduce Rush Loving. Thank you. Todd, that was very gracious of you. Thank you very much. I, uh, being a journalist in my day, we were all trained rigorously to be fair, to be balanced in our reporting, to be accurate, and always to be thorough. And that was great, that last item, proved to be very important because I got a lot of good stories just because I was thorough and asked an extra question or looked into an extra fact. It, it's like these two women who ran into each other in heaven and both were quite surprised to see the other and one of them says, well, <laughs> one of them says, well, why are you here? And the second one says, well, I froze to death. And the first one says, well, that sounds awful. She says, no, it wasn't too bad. I was awfully cold for a while, and then I, I fell asleep, and I died. But why are you here? And the first woman says, well, I was sure my husband was cheating on me. So I went home early to catch him and found him sitting in the den reading the paper. And I knew there must be a woman in that house. So I started searching. I looked in the basement. I looked all over the first floor. I looked on the second floor, even the attic. And the more I looked, the more worked up I became. And I got so worked up, I had a massive heart attack and died. <laughs> well, the second woman says, it was too bad you didn't look in the freezer. We'd both be alive. <laughs> The, the, the fellow who puts together these, these lectures is named Graham Dozier on the staff here at the Society. And Graham has a title which means a lot to me. He's a Virginia's Dabney editor of the Society's Quarterly uh, Magazine. I was privileged to know Virginia's Dabney. I worked with him. Um, he was... His contemporaries called him V. Well, the rest of us, he was Mr. Dabney. And I'll not forget many of the things I learned writing editorials on occasion for him and uh, just serving with him. Uh, the most notable was back in the mid-60s, I, I was a business editor. I wrote an editorial 
uh, about the Penn Central merger, which was then pending. And I referred to the chairman of the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, Stuart Saunders, as a former Virginian. Saunders had come from Bedford County, and run the Norfolk and Western, and gone up to Philadelphia. And Mr. Dabney came into my office the next day, and he said, Rush, as a good editorial, I'm going to run it. But you must understand one thing. When you're born a Virginian, you're always a Virginian. <laughs> and coming here to the Virginia Historical Society brings back many fond memories, because when I was a senior at the University of Richmond, history major, I, I researched my senior thesis here and won a prize for it. When I was a re young reporter at the Times-Dispatch, I covered the Virginia Historical Society as well as the Virginia Museum next door and uh, the Civil War Centennial, which was raging across the state then. Uh, as it, I, I, Journalists back in those days, in the 50s and 60s, were unique people. They were uh, irreverent. Um, they, they were just incredible, bright people. And one of the young reporters I came to know and really admire uh, and have an affection for was Stuart Bryan, who Todd mentioned just now. And Stuart was speaking a couple of years ago at the Cosmos Club in Washington, and I had introduced him. And he was talking about the current state of the media and he says, when Rush and I were young reporters, we all drank, we all smoked, and we all chased other men's wives. <laughs> well, I, I've got to take one exception with him on that. I did not smoke cigarettes. <laughs> Just a pipe. <laughs> Stuart became a, an exceptional publisher as he was an exceptional reporter, and uh, I think all of us miss him terribly. Back then, though, those earthy, creative young reporters uh, were cynical, and they turned out uh, tough stories, stories that really mattered and were balanced. And, and during all that time, I was uh, I enamored with railroads as a child, but I find, found myself even more enamored with them uh, more intrigued by them, particularly the economics of railroads. Uh, when I was small, my grandfather took me on an overnight run. He was a conductor on the Southern. Took me on an overnight run from Richmond to Danville. And that is when I really got hooked. And then as a business editor and associate editor of Fortune later, I was writing about railroads, among many other industries, and came to really, uh, as I say, love them all the more. And I came to know, and it was a great life because I was doing the two things I loved, writing and dealing with railroaders. And those railroaders included a lot of fascinating people. Uh, they were people like Hayes Watkins, who founded CSX. Uh, people like Avril Harriman, who before he joined the Roosevelt administration went to Moscow for FDR, 
Uh, Harriman was the chairman of the Union Pacific. And in fact, he created the Streamliner train in the mid-30s, and he developed Sun Valley into a major resort area in the West to attract passengers for the UP. And Abel Harriman told me in his latter years that of all the things he had achieved in his lifetime, those were the two he was proudest of. This was a railroad industry, indeed, uh, was the source of, of a lot of uh, creative achievements. Um, there were railroaders other than Harriman and, and uh, Watkins, like Alfred E. Perlman, who created, who turned around three railroads in his lifetime. He was one of the great railroad CEOs of his day. I came to meet other, some non-railroaders who were on railroad boards. One was Baldy Baldwin, a good Virginian who is a member of the board of the Virginia Historical Society. Baldy, as a young man, used a railroad office car or business car to go around and drum up enough business for his bank to turn a small Baltimore bank into one of the most powerful financial institutions in the East Coast. A true achievement. I found, too, that the best people to run railroads, the best men and women, were those who loved trains, who, who loved their work. And many of those executives were operations people, uh, and marketing people, but there are also some finance people like Watkins and some lawyers who were, who were good. Um, now, I like lawyers. I, I can't help it because my family is infested with them. One of them, my brother-in-law, who is a corporate attorney in Martinsville, thinks I should be a redneck like his friends. and. He won, for my 75th birthday, he gave me a motorcycle helmet. <laughs> and on it were decals. One decal said, 99% of all lawyers give the rest a bad name. <laughs> but another one said, having sex with a younger woman can be fatal, but if she dies, she dies. <laughs> Even my wife is a lawyer. She's a trial lawyer, not a corporate lawyer. And the judges in Baltimore tell me that she's one of the best in the state. She's a, a, a many of her clients, unlike corporate clients, are uh, she's defending for charges like um, uh, kidnapping and, and murder. And she, because of her work, she has to carry a sidearm. Now, when she got the permit to carry, uh, the state police sergeant who vetted her called me. He'd finished everything except had one follow-up question, and I answered it. And we're getting ready to hang up. And he says, Mr. Loving, 
I've got one piece of advice for you. Don't monkey with her. I've seen her targets. <laughs> now, some of those lawyers in the railroad business, lawyers in my book, um, some of them, like Bob Clayer, who created Norfolk Southern, his brother Graham of the Southern, were exceptional railroaders. Uh, and I found that some lawyers who headed railroads were not up to the job, though. And by the mid-1960s, when I started covering the business, the industry, the railroad industry was in grievous trouble. For a century, the railroads had been a key element of Virginia's economy and culture, and the economies and cultures of many states other than Virginia. The, it's interesting. Most people now are not aware of it, but the railroads created America. We wouldn't have big steel without railroads. We wouldn't have the big oil companies. It took trains to make those industries work. Um, it, it was fascinating how the railroads developed the West. They brought passengers in, actually recruited them from Europe, settlers, brought them out to the West. They set up homesteads, and then the railroads hauled their products, their produce, and their cattle uh, to to east, to the east, to the markets. The uh, railroads did very well over the years. Oh, they were ups and downs. They survived depressions and crashes and all that. But it was, and, and, and at the time of World War II, they were in their glory, really. The Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad in 1942 was moving 33 passenger trains a day, plus specials like troop trains and extra sections. They were carrying, it was carrying numerous freight trains. As a boy, I used to stand at the crossing at Dumbarton Village and watch those trains go by. And they were trains loaded with tanks and trucks and jeeps for the army steel for the shipyards, trains of refrigerated cars full of food and of meat and vegetables. And it was, it was a fascinating thing to see and very stirring. The railroads then had a monopoly on inner city transportation in America. It was um, not till after the war that that monopoly began to fade and railroads began to feel the pinch and they, some started merging in hopes of, of save, making savings on duplicating costs. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. The most notable case of a merger that did not work was Penn Central. And Stuart Saunders was the chairman up in almost the last day before the company went into bankruptcy. And he lacked a feel for railroad operations, but 
Saunders had a unique sense of public policy. After his ouster from Penn Central, I met in great secrecy with Saunders one morning at the Barclay Hotel in New York, and he gave me his side of the bankruptcy story. He told me the biggest problem Penn Central and other ailing railroads had was overregulation. At first, I dismissed that story as just an excuse for his own shortcomings. But two years later, I was having dinner in New York one evening with Graham Clater, who was then the chairman of the Southern. And at that point in time, the, there were five major railroads in bankruptcy in the Northeast, Penn Central being one. There were railroads in the Midwest that were failing. And Graham and I began to debate what to do to solve the problem. Now, Graham was a, a disciple of protege of, of uh, <coughs> Dean Atchison, excuse me, and a, a true Democrat. And Graham believed that government was the answer to problems. I tend to be more skeptical of government. And I started searching with Graham for what is the answer. And Graham, of course, was saying, well, the government could fix it. And I felt that politicians would just make matters worse. So afterwards, I began to think about all this. And I began to research what could be done to solve this problem. And as I began researching, I thought about what Stuart Saunders had said. And I found that Saunders was dead on right. Since World War II, the railroads had been struggling to compete. Airliners had stolen away their passengers and their lucrative mail business. Trucks were hauling now some of their most profitable traffic. And the Interstate Commerce Commission was the undisputed villain. The ICC bent to every pressure that came from Congress, from shippers, from the unions, from little communities along their rights away. And the commission was tediously slow in granting rate increases to compensate for the increases in, in labor costs. It took months to raise rates. It also took months to approve mergers, which were then very popular because of the state of the roads. The ailing Rock Island, or Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific was a good case to take a look at because the Rock was in serious trouble. It had proposed to the ICC that it be allowed to a three-way merger with the Southern Pacific and the Union Pacific. And it, it had taken 11 years 
for the ICC to grant to approve that merger, and even then with conditions. And even then, uh, by that time, the Rock Island was bankrupt and going into liquidation soon after. I put the findings of all that research into a fortune piece, and the few months after the story came out, uh, Congress and began to act. Um, to my amazement, Graham Clater's uh, faith in the government turned out to be well-founded. Congress and the White House provided a really sound solution to the bankruptcy problem. They created a special organization that pruned off all the non-profitable tracks and stations and services and merged the remaining into Conrail. Now, Conrail was a, the dominant railroad in the Northeast, of course, because of that. But unfortunately, it failed to make money, and the government had to subsidize it, much to the chagrin of the Office of Management and Budget and the, and the finance committees of the two houses. My after my report, my study came out, after Conrad was created, Congress began to talk about deregulating all forms of transportation, starting with air cargo. And this movement, as it, moved, as it went, uh, stirred more people to talk about uh, ending uh, regulation of railroads. The Conrail management uh, also wanted railroads deregulated because they felt that that would turn around Conrail. That without all these onerous restrictions, they could finally make money. Well, early 1979, Congress was drafting a bill called the Staggers Act to deregulate the railroads. I went to work in the White House for a year that summer and soon discovered that the draft of the bill as it by then existed had a lot of new restrictions in it and not a lot of new regulations that would have bankrupted the entire industry, some, some of these regulations. And it's funny, I discovered later that the problem uh, was Burlington Northern. The BN had gone into the coal business about 10 years earlier, and Lou Mank, who was its chairman, had set extremely low rates for hauling the coal. And the rates were so low, they weren't making money on the moves. They didn't, the rates didn't cover the deterioration of track and all that. So, Lou, being a man of, of great ego and a very brittle ego, and I love Lou, but he was, he, that was his shortcoming, Mink um, resisted the warnings of the Eastern Railroad uh, CEOs who hauled coal, who all told him this is not 
not a good idea. You, you're not making money. You might think so. And Lou, Lou resisted to the point of, of getting pretty antagonistic to those who gave him what they thought was good advice. Uh, in one case, he wrote a scathing letter to Jack Fishwick, the chairman of the Norfolk, Norfolk Southern, Norfolk and Western, who um, Jack was a sort of guy, that, that sort of thing rolled off. But uh, it, it proved a point to everybody that Lou was just deaf to reality. Well, finally, Manx's marketing people convinced him that they were indeed losing money and indeed, they needed to raise their rates and raise them pretty steeply. Well, when they jacked up those rates, the utilities all over the Midwest and the Southwest who were buying BN coal uh, went into a, well, raised hell is what they did. They were, they, these people, um, were led by a little lady in San Antonio who was the mayor down there named Leela Cockrell. And Ms. Cockrell was short and a little rotund and very grandmotherly, big glasses. And Well, she didn't know anything about the ICC, but she knew a lot about the, um, the, the um, politics and about the Congress. And so she proceeded to go to the halls of Congress and start twisting arms, and, and she got other utilities who were affected to do the same thing, and pretty soon they were rewriting the Staggers bill, and they were putting all these amendments on that were going to choke the railroads. Well, I, never, I worked for Jimmy Carter in the White House, and I, I liked him, but I never thought he was very decisive. But this time, he and his legislative staff really came through, came through big time. Um, they went to Congress. They worked with the leaders of Congress. They got the bill redrafted. And in early 1980, um, Carter signed the Staggers Act, freeing the railroads. It was the last real major thing he did before he was defeated that November. Now, regulation had been so pervasive, <clears throat> it took another 10 years for the railroads to adjust to the new free market that Staggers had given. And that watershed came in 19... Seven, uh, 89, when a trucker named Johnny Brian Hunt took a ride on a Santa Fe intermodal train. The big potential moneymaker that we'd all seen in the railroad industry was intermodal, the movement of containers and trailers. But no one seemed to know how to unlock that market. And a fellow named Mike Haverty, who ran operations at the Santa Fe, thought he knew. And his idea was instead of having all these trailers and containers delivered to the railroads through a middleman, a freight forwarder, 
who got most of the profit, they should the railroad should form a partnership with the truckers and thereby split the revenue and, and start making some money. Well, the marketing department of Santa Fe was deaf to Haverty's idea because he wasn't one of them. But then Haverty became president of the Santa Fe. <laughs> and he had his business car hooked onto the back of an intermodal train, put one of J.B. Hunt's trailers on a flat car right in front of it, and invited J.B. to come along and take a ride to Kansas City from Chicago. And they were riding along, standing there in the business car, looking at that trailer on the flat car in front of them. And Hunt was amazed because normally his trailers were bouncing all over the highway with potholes and seams and whatever. This thing was just sitting there at 60 miles an hour. He looked over at the interstate parallel to the tracks and the trucks there were creeping at best. Traffic was thick. It happened to be morning rush hour into Chicago. Um, this really just, he stood there 15 minutes. And then he turned around and put his hand out to Harvard and says, we got a partnership. And that was the beginning once the other railroads and truck lines saw how much money the Santa Fe and, the, and Hunt were making out of this relationship, they all formed partnerships too. And the, uh, the result was a, a boom of intermodal traffic, but the railroads never learned how to price their business. Excuse me. They never learned how to price what they were selling. That took 15 more years. And finally, in 2004, thereabouts, pardon me again, the truckers, uh, the railroads, started raising their rates and making the kind of money they should have been making all along. That put the railroads into a renaissance. So they were doing so well that people like Warren Buffett started buying into the business, and Warren actually bought the entire Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Um, and by the way, he later bought the Times Dispatch, I believe. <laughs> um, the business boomed until a couple of years ago. The railroads began having some problems. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the, the industry um, started hauling a lot of oil, crude oil, out of North Dakota's new bacon field. And they weren't ready for it. And the tracks around Chicago were jammed. Nobody had really planned adequately. Um, since then, uh, traffic has fallen off because of the economy, both here and in China. And intermodal traffic this year is 
uh, is down because of that softening economy. Domestically, coal traffic is off because utilities are burning uh, natural gas, which is cheaper, and the Obama administration has shut down many mines because of new environmental regulations. All this means that industry, despite the fact it's healthy, despite the fact that it's still in a golden age, the industry is going to face a lot of challenges in coming years. The railroad industry has got to learn to plan ahead, to be on top of changes, not behind them, but be in front, actually. The railroads, therefore, when the, the, the present generation of CEOs is starting to uh, get a little mature and there are going to be changes made in the coming years. Already one last year. And because of that, the boards of directors of these railroads have got to, to be very careful in who they name as the new CEOs. Boards of directors have a tendency in every industry that once the company is humming along, they sometimes forget to appoint to the top job the people who really know how to create th those profits, how to make the railroad, make the company really efficient and strong. And they'll name somebody who's very good in some little part of their specialty, but not necessarily suitable as a CEO of the corporation. And this, the boards of directors have got to avoid in the railroad industry, and for a very good reason. They're going to need to appoint people who think beyond the norm, who plan, who listen to their subordinates, not don't just dictate. They're going to need people who put their own enrichment second and are loyal first to their employees, their companies, and their customers. And most of, all, most of all, they're going to need executives who love their railroads, their industry, their jobs. And these stakes, if, if the directors fail to do this, the stakes are awfully high. Uh, over the past 10 years, some shippers have cried for re-regulation. If service falls short, if equipment's not there when needed, if the tracks are jammed again, that cry for, for re-regulation by the shippers will become more strident than ever. Congress is going to listen this time. It nearly did when Leela Cockrell uh, made her run against to amend the Staggers bill. And that, that fate, neither the railroads, nor America, nor its shippers, nor its, the American consumer can afford.
I'll be glad to take any questions. Thank you. I, I can't see. Uh, oh, yes. I see a hand there. What is your hopes for Amtrak? Uh, Amtrak's just going to have a new, he, he asked my hopes for Amtrak. Amtrak has a new CEO, uh, Wick Mormon, who is a CEO of Norfolk Southern. I think Wick is ideally suited for the job. Amtrak already has made plans to get new train sets to replace the Excella, the high-speed train that it runs on the corridor. These sets will provide service every 30 minutes at 140 miles an hour. And it's, a, it's going to be a change on the corridor maybe a change as far down as Richmond. I think WIC will see to it that service is improved. Service right now is not great. He, he has the ability to get the money that's needed. So my hopes are that Amtrak is going to do well. What it needs to do most is to, one, get on the annual federal budget, which it's not. Every year it has to go hat in hand to the Congress saying, oh, we don't have any more money, we need a subsidy. That's not the way to do it. Rail passenger service doesn't pay. It's not gonna. The costs are high. Airlines are subsidized. You've got air traffic control, you've got airports that are funded, or capitals funded by the, uh, some government. So you're going to have to have a, a better system financially. And I think Amtrak is going to have to persuade Congress and the public that the way to cut highway congestion is to put people on trains just as they, truckers are putting con containers and trailers on trains. Yeah. And George, you're your lecture, sir, and uh, have always been a train enthusiast. And on a recent trip to Europe, I was amazed at the long, sleek passenger trains that were moving along on super good equipment. Now, I realize the uh, Japanese as well as the Chinese and a big part of Europe do have a streamlined railway system. How did we fall so far behind, and is the deregulation or regulation what caused that problem? Uh, deregulation definitely did not cause it. And we have a different situation here. You have to have a market that's dense enough to support those trains. Uh, in Europe, cities are close enough together, so they're real corridors between these cities. Um, and you've got an economy, too, where I think the auto isn't as prevalent. It's prevalent, but not as prevalent as here. Uh, we have corridors, but on longer-haul trains, like from here to Jacksonville and Miami, 
we don't have that kind of market. We need those trains, but we can't provide that kind of service in those uh, routes. In addition, it takes billions to create a high-speed high railroad uh, line. You've got to have dedicated track. You can't share it with a freight train. You have to dedicated track that is pretty well protected from grade crossings or people coming onto the property uh, because of the speed, because of the, the impact of an accident. Uh, accidents at high speed cause a lot of wreckage. So you, here is a little different, but we can do it in certain corridors. Uh, we're doing it now, trying to in the Northeast. Uh, so don't give up hope, but it's, we're not behind because of, of regulation or anything like that. We're really behind in large part because it is a different situation. Do you think anybody's going to pony up the money to build high-speed rail south of Washington? I don't know. I hope for your sake they do, but I don't know. <laughs> you got some curvature on RFMP, not a lot, but you got some that have to be dealt with, and you, you need some extra uh, ground for expanding. You, you've got to have another track. It's dedicated track. Two questions. Yeah. One, the, do you refer to the CEOs as the well-dressed hobo? Is that what, what you mean? Or ask who is the well-dressed hobo? And the second one is, what is your take on Union Pacific, just offhand, as it is now currently and in the future? Well, the well-dressed hobo, I needed a central character for the book. And my agent and my wife suggested that I would have to be the character. <laughs> so when we came down to the hobo bit, I would ride on these business cars and tour yards, and I'd, I'd find these hobos riding boxcars uh, in their de blue denims and all that. Um, and sitting by campfires on the outside of these rail yards. And here I was riding business cars, sipping good whiskey, smoking my pipe, and, uh, and always dressed with coat and tie. So I'm afraid I'm the well-dressed hobo. <laughs> uh, the other question about the Union Pacific. I, Union Pacific is has gone through some tumultuous times. You wouldn't know it, but they, back in the 90s, they, they had some real problems. But they uh, seem to be doing pretty well. And I'm not sure. Intermodal business is good. They're getting a real run for their money from their competitors. But that's pretty good. <coughs> the article in the paper the other day mentioned the high-speed rail service threatened Ashland. What do you think might be the positive answer for both entities there? 
I'm sorry. My throat is playing up on me. Um, you can't run a high-speed train through Ashland unless you build a cyclone fence along each side and make it impossible to cross the tracks unless you have an overpass or an underpass. It's better if run um, around Ashland, but uh, you can't just run it down the main street like you do now. It's wonderful the way they do it now. I, and, and when they had passenger trains, uh, they slowed down and uh, went through at a reasonable rate, and the freights do today. But if you want high speed and you don't want to, you want to run it nonstop without slowing down from Richmond to Fredericksburg or Washington, you uh, have to do something else with the route. How well does the railroad <clears throat> museums in Roanoke uh, reflect the industry? Uh, it seems to reflect history pretty well. Uh, I haven't been there in some years. Uh, more familiar with the B&O Museum in Baltimore. But uh, they're doing a great job there. They're running steam excursions, which are very popular. And I think overall, it's a great museum, and, and they're doing very well, and they're attracting a lot of people. I get their emails all the time. I haven't heard you mention the unions at all anywhere in this discussion. Uh, what part have they had to play in this whole story? That's a very good question, because the unions were a real problem for many years. They had a stranglehold on Congress. Uh, they, they were not, uh, they were out for themselves to the point where they were hurting the railroads. And they now have, uh, have very good working relationships with the railroads. They are contributing, I think, to the welfare of the industry. And I think it's largely because modern union leaders have recognized they can't just take, they have, it has to be a partnership. And the railroads, thank God, have woken up too. To, they, their labor relations are better than they used to be. How do you believe the industry is responding to or should be responding to exploding cars and derailing in populated areas? They have, and the problem with that <laughs> the first big accident of, of those crude oil cars, none of us believed it was crude oil. We thought it was propane because crude generally is not volatile. And then they finally found that this particular crude is. So the railroads are strengthening their cars, checking their tracks, trying to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore, and we've the number of accidents has gone down. <coughs> uh, yes, sir. I just have a question about the high-speed rail. Uh, it seems that there would have to be some sort of uniform control 
over the track. <coughs> if Virginia approves high-speed rail and Maryland does what Pennsylvania does, it, it's not going to have any, uh, you know, obvious continuity. How is the industry going to come up with uh, uh, something that would guarantee uh, uniform control of, of uh, high-speed rail, which politically what it could involve, uh, you know, condemnation proceedings, eminent domain, things like that. Oh, How you do you mean, see that in the future? You mean for building new track? Building it, yes, sir. Um, in general, I don't think you'd run into, well, you might run into a problem from local landowners. They're the ones who, who are going to say, you know, not on my property. I don't think you'll run into a political problem because there is a lot of pressure, as you can tell by these questions. People are interested in being able to get on a high-speed speed train. So I, I think a lot of it's going to be... Uh, maybe a public relations problem. Uh, it's always this not-in-my-backyard kind of thing that goes on whenever there's an attempt to build an industry or a railroad or whatever. But I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily would, would kill this. It, it, it will depend on the attitude of the local government, I think. If you were going to uh, predict or forecast what the railroads would look like in the year 2030, what would be your description? All right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a time out. It's hard to say. Uh, you can, I've been surprised over the years over some things that have happened, pleasantly sometimes and unpleasantly others. So I think the railroad industry... Uh, in 15 years from now will possibly be, um, well, if you get the right people running it, as I said, a railroad will continue on uh, like it is today. But if you don't put the right people in, in the CEO's jobs, you could have serious problems, you could have bankruptcies, you could have unnamed problems, unknown, and, and could be anything. So I think that the future really depends on what these boards of directors do, and uh, I think the market is going to be there. Uh, what we do with NAFTA, for instance, could affect some rail traffic but maybe not. It's just, that's sort of up in the air depending on what politicians do and uh, what railroad managements do. I'm sorry I can't be more specific. 